We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the Danemore NBA podcast, and today, Monday, September 21st, the Timberwolves, along with the seven other teams that were not invited to the Orlando bubble, are starting the group portion of what is officially called the 2020 NBA in-market program. Apparently, within the league, they're just calling this, for short, the program, which sounds probably like a good idea. Uh, Whatever it's called, September 21st for the Timberwolves, uh, signals the first time I did the math in 195 days that this team um, is going to be able to play five-on-five basketball. March 10th was the last time, uh, yeah, like the the Wolves could actually play a game against each other. 200 days is just an insane um, dead period. So it's it's obviously good news for this franchise. Um, Yeah, that they're that they're back, able to practice, able to get together at Mayo Clinic Square and. For today's show, um, we're going to kind of, I guess, time capsule this moment as a pivot point into um, into next season. And to do that, Ryan Saunders and Gerson Rosas answered some questions from a few of us in the local media um, over Zoom the other day. They both went into some basketball-related and roster-related things for us. And a few of those comments stood out to me, so I'm going to play those sound bites for you, then kind of discuss what I what I took away from those bits and yeah it'll just be it'll just be me on this episode this will be something I'm going to try and do um in addition to the episodes I normally do with guests as you know as Wolves basketball kind of slowly sneaks back into the picture here it's a it's a weird time for sports media and these uh you know just trying to make the most out of these sort of zoom session things that we get for access to the players because obviously I can't go to the practices and to the games like like normal. So to start, um, I think the main news tidbit from uh, Gerson was that Carl Anthony Towns is participating um, in 
quote unquote the program. And that's, you know, that's huge. Towns, of course, missed the final 12 games um, of the season with a wrist injury. And as you'll hear, um, Rosas gives Cat a, you know, quote unquote, uh, pretty healthy label entering camp. So here's Rosas. Quick question for you guys. Uh, it sounds like Cat may not have any physical uh, limitations coming into this. Is, is assume or, or kind of what's the update on his wrist there? You know, for the most part, Cat and, and all our guys are are pretty helpful, healthy, I should say. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, as much as we want to ramp up, this isn't a zero to a hundred. Uh, this is there's a lot of individual work that's been done. Uh, for the most part, uh, most of our guys are are healthy. I think we have a a, a broken nose uh, from individual workouts that we haven't reported yet because of a of, of a little fall. But other than that, our guys are in good health. Um, every guy has their own personalized program. Uh, we'll be able to ramp up as much as we can uh, in an off-season situation. Uh, there will be five-on-five. There will be live scrimmaging. Uh, but every guy's in a different situation. So uh, we don't want to uh, overdo it here, you know, uh, being two, three months out of the start of the season and uh, have, a, have a setback medley. Medically, so we're going to be very cautious, uh, but for the most part, our guys are in good health, good spirits, and, and very motivated to make the most of this time. So while Towns missed games back in the spring, um, it was undecided whether they were going to just let his wrist heal naturally or whether he would need to have surgery on that. It was, so it's kind of in March. We were they were waiting, you know, for for more information to kind of give it, get another X-ray, see how much it healed on its own, but. We never, we never got that information, and I think just given everything that has been happening in Carl's world, uh, you know, we, we didn't get that clarity, and you know, I think that's fine. Uh, whether he had surgery or the wrist healed naturally, either way, he's he's back in the gym. And and last week when they were the the players were just doing individual workouts, um, Towns was there early and often. Rosa said that um it was 6 a.m. that cat was in every day um was his individual slot with a coach so apparently yeah he's been he's been putting in the work early and often and i think this i think this bubble environment could be you know kind of invaluable in connection to towns for this team you know specifically you know he was he was shut down two games we got to remind ourselves of these things two games after the deadline um yeah obviously russell missed that first game and then they had that one game together in toronto but but after that it was nothing which meant he Cat shared the floor for only 50 minutes with Malik Beasley this year and even less with Juancho Hernan Gomez and, and Russell. It's so just for some context, I was looking this up, the actual minutes, and you see Malik Beasley, 50 minutes, and right above that is Cat played 52 minutes with Alan Crabb this year. Remember him? So, yes. So Cat has just really didn't get any sort of time to play with these new pieces, and and I think it, it's obviously it'll be big for a getting to know each other standpoint. But I think if you think about it from the the lens of a coach, you know, there there's just no film or very limited film of Towns playing with these new players. And and I think, you know, if I'm Saunders, I'm excited to use this time in this camp of five on five playing with the players. I mean, they have a million different cameras in the practice facility to to really be able to grab what it what each player on this roster looks like alongside Carl Anthony Towns. So I asked him about that and I asked him about kind of how this roster, you know, fits with cap from a scheme standpoint. And this is what uh, Saunders had to say. Uh, the, the two words that 
stood out from what you said so far were details and tweaks, I think. Yeah. And thinking back to, to last fall or a year ago, I guess, when we were in Mankato, and that's kind of your time uh, to implement your system. And mm-hmm. we saw it at training camp where it's you and DV on the board before practice. And I'm wondering if this, whatever this camp is, yeah. is this a time where you're able to start implementing this year's system or mm-hmm. is that, is that yeah. wait? Like what, it, what yeah. is kind of the, the coaching yeah. basketball motivation here? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a great question. There's, there's a, a few different elements to that. And, and as a staff, we've been, we've been uh, focusing a lot as we meet on, you know, what we, we liked from last year, what we're learning in this bubble right now, and then what we, we would like to tweak, but also what we would like to get on film during this quote-unquote campus bubble. And, you know, hey, this isn't, it's not training camp. Um, this is a time for group work with our, with our players and just focusing on getting them better and, and getting our team better and getting us into a position where when, when this next season does start, we're ready to hit the ground running. Because th- this is th- – I'm really excited. I know Gerson is. I know our organization is because this is such a unique time right now, but you don't get a whole lot you, – you don't get these opportunities a lot where you can watch – the season is still kind of going on, so you're watching some of the things that other teams are doing, and you're able to – focus on your processes, you know, for two weeks in a very secluded environment with, you know, players, a lot of players that you'll have for the next season. That's really important. And we're going to maximize that time. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, we'll focus on, you know, what our system is, what it's been, the tweaks that we're looking to make, but we'll also try some things that, you know, I won't tell you, you know, you can do a little digging on it, on it, Dane, but I won't tell you everything right now. They, uh, things that we saw in the bubble that we like that we might think are going to help, you know, our team offensively, help our team defensively and get those on film, then dissect that. And then we'll get into training camp and really have our, our, our full on firm system. So that's a, a swing and a miss on Saunders just telling me what the scheme will be. Um, probably no surprise there, but, uh, but Jace Frederick uh, on another point, I'm not going to play this clip, but Jace asked Saunders in another portion of the zoom about kind of observations he's had from just watching these playoffs in the bubble and um, and Saunders specifically referenced the Toronto Raptors and how they are a group that, quote, defensively was all over the place, the way they were in passing lanes, the way they help each other. And he just kind of was, you know, referencing or alluding to that being, you know, that being the type of team that that Ryan wants this group to, you know, be emblematic of defensively. And so for me, after hearing that, I, I went back onto Synergy to kind of like, go through some of Toronto's defensive film specifically from that, from that series against Boston. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to just try and see how Toronto quote played all over the place while also helping each other. And additionally, or maybe mo- more than anything else, I wanted to to focus on how Marcus all or Serge Ibaka functioned in the defensive role of the center is obviously that would be the role Saunders would task towns with. So, so when watching, I mean, many of you are probably thinking, wait, 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 like Toronto played a box and one in the playoffs, like the Wolves, the Wolves aren't going to play zone, which I, yes, probably true. Although the Wolves, once Cat got hurt, they did play, they did play a ton of zone in those 12, 13, whatever games with, with Russell. Still, I, it's, it's kind of weird, but, but the principles of Toronto, Toronto's defensive scheme in man to man aren't all that different than what they are when they run that zone. In zoner man, their their schemes rely on aggressively running shooters off the three point line, 
that's kind of like the ethos of that. They're they're always going to prioritize forcing the man to penetrate rather than allowing an open three, and they do that just by flying out to contest. And then that aggression from the contest is, you know, is kind of buoyed by having you know, bringing strong side help to the nail that limits that penetration to force the ball to the to be swung again. So just think of it like hard close out on a three-point shooter, force them to penetrate, stop that penetration at the free throw line, forcing another kick out to a shooter, close out hard on that shooter, force another penetration, meet it at the free throw line, rinse and repeat, you know, kind of till the shot clock expires. That's, you know, that's the goal of the Toronto Raptors defense. And obviously that doesn't happen every time. And that's why you have a rim protector. And, you know, in, in, it's important for them to they prioritize keeping Marcus Hall or Serge Ibaka on the back line because sometimes you don't you don't limit that penetration at the free throw line and they do get to the rim and that's where you do need Gasol or Ibaka to block shots or defend without fouling so for me this is actually pretty easy to picture if we you know if we bring in the Wolves personnel and specifically Cat like I, it would it would be Far, this would be a far more aggressive scheme than what the Wolves were doing last year and that it would ask a lot more from the Wolves' guards or wings in, in their rotations. And But I, I actually think the roster has guys who could be good at that scrambling out to run people off the three-point line. Like they, they have Josh Okogie, they have Jarrett Culver, Drake Lehman, etc. I think the issue would would I would see is that the, the surrounding wing players would really need to improve their ability to read the floor and their ability to react in a timely fashion. That's kind of the, that's kind of the cutting the ball, cutting the penetration off and help at meet the strong side help at the nail, like players like D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley. They would, they would need to be that nail help limiting penetration after players run off the three point line. And then as for towns, you know, he would, he would still be relied on as a communicator, which is something, you know, to be fair, honest, like that's not something he's always been timely with. He's He can be loud out there, but it's really important to kind of be seeing a step ahead as the big man. So it would require um, it would require Towns to kind of level up in that area, but it would give him some additional free, freedom to be more aggressive because while in rotations, the, the Toronto scheme does ask for the big to get out and switch onto the perimeter to contest three-point shots. So it wouldn't look like it did with the Wolves this year where Cat is just always back at the rim. I mean, he would still be, if they're facing a ball screen, or Toronto, if they're facing a ball screen, they're still dropping Gasol. But off ball, or in late shot clock situations, the center is allowed to use his discernment to go out and switch out if it's, there's five seconds left on the shot clock to get out there. You're not giving that shot. You're not going to drop back to the rim. This is a situation where it's worth, you know, stepping out to the perimeter. And I think, I think Kat would really like that. I, I don't, I don't know if he'd necessarily be good at it, but I think, again, you, you look at Marcus Saul and he's elite at that discernment part of the big role in that scheme. But he's, I mean, he's, at this point, he's pretty much a zero in terms of using speed, you know, to get out to, to the perimeter. And, and I think at, at worst Towns is kind of the inverse of that. And if his, if his discernment does improve, 
I think I think you have something there. Or you, you I think you certainly have a better version of defender and cat individually. And then the other four players would need to kind of support around him. But I think I mean just numbers wise, if we're looking at Toronto, I mean they just they had a ton of success playing this way. They had the best half court defense in the league this year, according to Cleaning the Glass. You know, they were noticeably ahead of the number two half court defense, which was Milwaukee, who was, a, of course, the, you know, the, the top overall defense in the league. And then it also helped this defensive scheme that Toronto, you know, rarely turned the ball over on offense, that, that limited the amount of possessions that they had to get out in transition defense. And, and, and that, you know, that, that's a big thing because that Toronto group, again, with, Players like Marcus Saul weren't a great, weren't great at getting back in transition defense, and so, so I think that would be an important element for the Wolves to apply to the offensive side of the ball to help you know improve their, their defensive side of the ball. Now it's not all roses or whatever with this scheme. I think if if we're looking for weaknesses in the scheme, you know, Toronto was a poor defensive rebounding team, and and I think that makes sense given that there's their system, you know, literally asks their players to scramble out of position. That's going to lead to being out of position for defensive rebounds. That's, you know, part of the opportunity cost there. And Toronto also fouled a lot. But I think that's another logical pitfall of playing in a, in a very aggressive scheme. So, but overall, I mean, just kind of watching some of that film and, and thinking about it, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty intrigued by how this concept would fit this Wolves roster and more than anything I'm just interested in in looking at them do some doing something different um but I do think it's important to acknowledge that this scheme would take time to become synergistic Toronto's success defensively is just as much about understanding each other as it is about any sort of X's and O's I mean you watch them play any defensive possession and you know, you, you can just you can just see that they they play connected. I mean, that's what Tibbs always said. You play on a string defensively, and that string, it, you know, it, it takes time to fuse. That's why it was – that's a reason why the Chicago defense was so much better that Tibbs coached than the one in Minnesota. There just wasn't that string. There wasn't that continuity. So just because the Wolves would play defense like the Toronto Raptors would certainly not guarantee that they would have the results of them. But I think – I don't know. I mean, optimistically, maybe this additional time um, with this camp, like a camp before training camp, helps kind of expedite that synergy process and the Wolves get more more and more used to playing defense together in whichever way it is they choose to use. Um, as for who is all not participating in the, this program, the, the two names I was looking for on the roster were Malik Beasley and Wancho Horn and Gomez, obviously being as... Um, you know, both are just entering free agency. Uh, Rosa shared that that Beasley will be attending um, the in-market program, which I think is a big deal. Uh, and then want, that, that Wancho wants to be there, but has a previous commitment to film a movie with Adam Sandler, which somehow is, is not actually a joke. This is what uh, Rosa's had to say about that. Building off that a little bit, what does it say about a guy like Beasley who is a restricted, going to be a restricted free agent and, you know, has a sort of uncertainty or, about things that might you want he might want to play it safe from a health standpoint, but to see him here and participating with that, um, what do you think just it says about his mentality and what you guys have there? 
I'm smiling and giggling, John, and coach can speak to it, but that's, that's what I like about, love about our group. We've got workers. Uh, like coach and I are sitting in the meeting before this and Beasley calls to, to say how much he wants to play and be here uh, throughout it, but we're understanding. He's going into free agency. We're very respectful of that. Him and, and his group have been very open. Uh, we want to support him as much as he wants to do, and it's impressive. Uh, most free agents just, just lock up and go. Uh, you know, we've got another free agent in, in Juancho uh, who uh, is filming a movie and is chomping at the bit because he's not allowed to be here. He didn't realize when he signed up for the movie that we were going to have the bubble. Uh, so uh, we hear from him often uh, that, that he would prefer to be here. But that's becoming our DNA. Guys that love to work, guys that love to play, they're missing out. Uh, Coach mentioned it earlier, but we talk about breakfast club. We've got guys here 6, 7, 8 a.m., and they're all fighting each other for the first session. They want to come in here and get their work done. Uh, but that, that's, as an organization, that's what we need. Uh, we have a lot of work. Uh, we've got a long road ahead of us. Uh, but with professionals and passionate individuals like that, you can't help but feel good about, uh, about our future. Just having done a, a few of these you know, Zoom calls over the summer and talking here and there to, to Rosas and Saunders. I think I, me personally, I think I'm officially at the point where I'd be, it, it would shock me if the Wolves didn't re-sign Malik Beasley. And I, I'm not saying that means for sure that, that Beasley is on the team next year, a sign, you know, and trade would technically be re-signing him. But as far as just how they view Malik and, and what I think they'd be willing to pay, I think they're, they're, they're up, would be up there with anybody, anybody's offer, and would, and would be willing to pay that amount. And the only way that I think they wouldn't bring Malik back is if they can find a way to sign and trade him for a player that they think is, is just you know, more talented, even, even better than, than Beasley. I mean, just one, one thing I've just been thinking about watching Denver in these, in these playoffs is it's kind of interesting to think about what – I mean, Malik Beasley is great for the Wolves – but what would he have been like in these playoffs for the Nuggets? And and I, I was thinking about it, and I I wonder I wonder if he would be in their rotation at all in in these playoffs or or anything more than a very limited role, um, b- because of sort of the defense. I mean, we've seen watching Denver that they've had to prioritize playing one of Jeremy Grant, not one of multiple of Jeremy Grant. Um, Gary Harris and who else am I saying? Tory Craig. Like I don't, I don't know if this Denver team would have actually needed Malik Beasley's offensive boost as they, as much as they would have wanted to have had, you know, extra defense out there. I, you, I don't know. You'll be, I'm sure, those of you listening to this will be watching the Lakers Nuggets Western Conference Finals here, and I don't know, just watch the game and think about. Where or why would it make sense to play Malik Beasley? And I, I don't, I don't mean that to totally crap on Beasley, but it's, it is if that's right, if I'm right, which maybe I'm not, it's a reason to kind of question and wonder if it's a great idea to just lock in to Malik if he is going to be the third best player on this team, you know, beyond in in seasons to come. And I've said this before. I, I think Beasley's a a player who's who's an ideal sixth man um, and can kind of give you 
that that burst off the bench. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it's just it's just kind of shifted a little bit of my opinion on Beasley. Not that I don't think they shouldn't resign him and that they shouldn't pay up to, for him to some degree, but it's, it's kind of a reminder that we, we can look and look at what Beasley did um, for the Wolves in those 14 games, which was just objectively really productive. And also kind of question of, well, if the Wolves are in a playoff series next year, if they are in a playoff series two years from now, what does Malik Beasley look like in the playoffs? And, and, you know, quite frankly, we can do that to a lot of players uh, along the league, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Just just one thing that I've been thinking of in, in this time. But that said, um, I, I do think Beasley will be re-signed. I think there's almost a 0% chance that the Wolves would just... or It would shock me if they just let him uh, walk in free agency. The The other player um, beyond Beasley and Herman, Hernan Gomez that I wanted to ask about um, was Jared Vanderbilt. And I, I just have kind of... You know, as we sit here and we look at the roster and the everything is kind of slowed down and <laughs> we can assess who's actually on this team. I think I think in hindsight, we, you know, the, the media fans, whatever, we kind of got a little hyper focused on the acquisition of, of D'Angelo Russell and, and kind of only really let our curiosity spill over into Beasley, Hernan Gomez, and and maybe James Johnson. And and I just think if it would have been a more traditional deadline with fewer moves and that the wolves would have just gotten Jared Vanderbilt. I think, I think we would have, he would have piqued a lot more curiosity than, you know, than he, than he sort of did this year. And I don't know. I, I think it's just, it's important to kind of to, to look at what, like the, all those players that the wolves got and, and sort of put them in, in tears. And, and yes, we have, we have Russell alone in the quote unquote co-star tier of the players that they acquired. Beasley and Hernan Gomez are in tier two as these high-end role players entering restricted free agency. And James Johnson is, is tier three as a potential rotation piece. But then it feels like we put Vanderbilt into that tier four with Amari Spellman, Jacob Evans, even Alan Crabb. And, and I feel like that, that Vanderbilt should be in that James Johnson tier as a, as a potential rotation piece. And, and I think the, the reason I believe that or what why we can glean that is because Vanderbilt, like Spellman and Evans, is under contract for next season. But the, the way he was acquired was very different. Like, yes, all these players came in at the trade deadline, but 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 Spellman and Evans were acquired in a Golden State deal, and Golden State, a motivator for them for making that move was in the Wiggins Russell swap. But beyond picking up that the Wolves twenty twenty one first was that they wanted to they needed to duck the luxury tax this season which they which they barely did and and by being able to dump Spellman and Evans on the Wolves that was a big deal for Golden State being as they're going to be in the tax next year they couldn't they would have been in the tax if they kept those guys so i think you know those guys were just far more salary dumps than Vanderbilt was Vanderbilt was acquired in the Denver deal and unlike Spellman and Evans who were salary dumps Vanderbilt was someone targeted by Rosas in this front office as an as an asset to bring back from Denver in addition to Beasley and Hernan Gomez. And yeah, again, I think we we brushed over that, maybe even, you know, Rosas in, in talking about it, because he has to talk about, you know, the ten different guys that they brought in, you know, didn't even really highlight that enough. But but yeah, I, I just I, I wanted to ask Rosas about that um, when we did the Zoom and, and this is what he had to say. High praise he paid to Vanderbilt. 
Uh, Gerson, question for you. Um, I, I think with just sort of all the transactions that happened at the deadline, um, a player that maybe got brushed over a little bit is, uh, is Jared Vanderbilt. And obviously he's here um, in, in the bubble with you guys here. Could, could you share a little bit about uh, what, you, what you see in him as a player and, and how, he, how and where he might sort of fit in um, to the, the fabric of this team? Uh, it's an incredibly big offseason for, for Jared, and he's making the most of it. Uh, he's been here throughout, working hard, working diligently. Uh, you know, initially when the trade happened, as you mentioned, he spent a lot of time with our team in Iowa, was, which was important for his evaluation and his development. But we're big fans. Uh, he, was, he was a big part of that trade. Uh, for us to take a shot on a young guy who's as versatile as he is, Defense is one of the areas we have to shore up and a guy who, uh, I mean, for his minutes, you know, whether it's college, uh, the little he's played in the NBA or the, or the G League, uh, his ability to defend and rebound is something that really intrigues us. And coach is working on different approaches defensively. And to be fair to him, we got to give him more defensive options. And he potentially could be one of those guys, a guy who's versatile, who's physically gifted, uh, who uh, has some defensive instincts that are pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, the rebounding is freakish. A guy that can run the floor, that can handle it a little bit, that can finish around the basket. We're excited. You know, it, it's going to take him some time. He's a young player in this league. Uh, he needs a lot of development, uh, but he's got a motor. He's got a great attitude. He's doing everything he can off the court, whether it's work or diet, uh, to give himself a shot to be part of our rotation. And, uh, Dane, he's a guy that it's going to be a big offseason for him. It's going to be a big training camp for him, but he's going to be given every opportunity to succeed. So for years, there's been this floating around sort of legend about Vanderbilt's rebounding in college, and I think we kind of just heard Rosa's allude to it, and that's because he rebounded he rebounded 23.1% of Kentucky's missed shots. Um, when he was there as a freshman, which is like a legitimately, in, it's, I know maybe 23.1 doesn't mean anything to you, but that's like stat wise, that's an insane number. Like if you, if you go through the NCAA every year and the, the leaders in offensive rebound rate is like 17 or 18%. So, so Vanderbilt smashed that in, in the 14 games when he was at Kentucky and, and that, you know, that does matter. That should theoretically signal something. And, um, but, but really for me, if I'm being honest, I was like only, one of the only things in my head when I was thinking about, oh, Jared Vanderbilt, I remember he's that really good rebounding guy. And and I at the deadline, I went to, to look at some of his film, as I did with the other guys they acquired, and I, and I turned on his his stuff for when he was on the Nuggets, and it's, it's literally like 90% garbage time. You know, the Nuggets are up by 25, and Vanderbilt gets a dunk with two minutes left in the fourth, fourth quarter, like stuff like that. And... Okay, to be, to be honest, with with the Wolves having plenty of other acquired players that I could check out, I, I kind of moved on from Vanderbilt pretty quick, and I, I guess I regret spending more time on Jacob Evans than I did on on Vanderbilt because, as I just got to, like Vanderbilt is actually a piece here, and and I think yeah, going back to my notes, looking at it, then I it, <laughs> I literally all I wrote was looks like a looks like a dunker spot guy who can't shoot at all. And so that's not enough. That, like, that isn't a fair assessment of Jared Vanderbilt because we're only looking at his Denver film, only looking at what he did those two years where he wasn't a part of the rotation on the Nuggets. So 
on Friday, I went back in and I went through his college film at Kentucky during that 2017-18 season, which for me was it was it was kind of interesting to do, given that I've been doing that same thing with the film of the prospects in this 2020 class. And I, I don't know, maybe because of the last prospect I watched was Denny of Dia. I, I mean, but but Vanderbilt's college film looked legit, like freakish athletically, to use Gerson's word. And and like the offensive rebounding thing was nice. Like, yeah, you you, you kind of notice that. But like, if we're being honest, there's like a couple times where he offensive rebounds his own offensive rebound, and it's like, okay, well, I, I don't know. It's just it wasn't the main thing that I'm leading with if I'm describing Jarrett Vanderbilt after watching his film. And, and I think for me, what it is, is it's his, it's his combination of speed and power in, in all aspects of the game and, and probably really speed more than, more than anything. I think we kind of know that power that he uses as a rebounder, but the speed and Vanderbilt is one of those guys who, when he clearly isn't running his fastest is still running faster than everyone else on, on film. And, and keep in mind, like, he was playing at Kentucky, like with legit athletes on, on that team. He had Shea Gilgis Alexander was his teammate, Kevin Knox, PJ Washington, Hamadou Diallo, Wendy and Gabriel, guys who are all in the NBA right now. A handful of those guys played in these playoffs or rotation pieces. And, and those guys were all Vanderbilt's teammates that season. And, and athletically, he pops, he pops in college as much, you know, as much as any of those guys. And I, I think his, yeah, his film just, shows that he's both fast and quick and physical enough to move bodies. And honestly, the, the way I, I, I want to say this without being hyperbolic, but the, the way he reminded me of Pascal Siakam before Pascal Siakam developed or when Pascal Siakam was bad. And I'm not saying he's Siakam, but I think I do think people forget that Siakam started. He was a starter as a rookie for the Raptors. And, and that year, all Siakam really was, was he was the fifth option in the starting lineup. He was just really fast, a really strong athlete, and he was somebody who couldn't dribble or couldn't, couldn't shoot. And in a nutshell, that, that's Vanderbilt's college film. Which, again, like, and which we should ignore it, note, Vanderbilt cannot shoot, could not shoot in college. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sight unseen. I'm probably picking you person listening to this podcast in a game of horse over Vanderbilt. Like when, when he shot jumpers at Kentucky, I, I literally think every single one of them was an air ball or hit the backboard. He, he did not, he, he is not a shooter and I would be shocked if he develops into one. He also, he also, I mean, he's fine dribbling in transition, but a lot of time once he kind of got in the half court and he's driving on his man and another guy could help he fumbled the ball a lot, or or he he had a lot of those like Gorgie Jang type travels, and and then also if he would get it inside or anywhere like within ten feet of the hoop, it was like it was like Shabazz Muhammad. You remember that? Like when he would get in the post, he's just like, oh, I'm not I'm not passing it. This, this shit's going up, and I I, I say that to to point out that that Vanderbilt's film is equally you know enticing as it is flawed and. And, you know, both of those things matter. But but at the same time, we're talking about this guy who's on a minimum contract next year who physical attributes-wise is a big – like Vanderbilt's right up there with Wiseman, with Akangu, with the Toppins from this class. 
and and it's in his own way. I mean, Wiseman is way bigger. He's an athletic freak, probably even maybe even freakier than than Vanderbilt is, and he's the size of a. I go pull up some YouTube clips. He looks like a pterodactyl. He's massive, and a Kongu as a freshman at USC, like he got buckets and is. I think it's fair to say he's going to come into the NBA as a legit defender day one of his rookie year. And then there's Toppin. Like we've like people are are down on Toppin, and 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 there's reasons for that. But as a as a college player, as his film, Toppin was the the best big man in college this year, bar none, and he dominated pretty much everyone because he was dominant and his team was dominant because of that. So. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not saying Vanderbilt would be a lottery pick if, if that player from 2017-18 came out and was in this draft. I don't think he'd, he'd be a lottery pick. I mean, there's a reason he went 41st overall in the 2018 draft. But but after watching Vanderbilt's film, I, I feel confident in saying that his dropping to the second round was, was far more about him having broken his foot twice before he was 19 than it was about his actual his actual film in college. And that foot is probably still a concern. I mean, he's two, you know, two plus years removed from that, but only two plus years. I mean, Vanderbilt just turned 21 during the shutdown, April 3rd. That means he's literally younger than Jared Culver and 13 months. He's 13 months younger than, than Obi Toppin. So I don't know if you, it, it's kind of hard to, to find clips of him. Um, but, but just, I guess, just take my word from it. Like Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt's college film as a prospect was, you know, was, was something that just in that vacuum, it, it really did stand out. And he's a, he's a, he's a hell, he's a hell of a physical prospect to look at. So speaking of draft prospects, um, I'm going to start getting back into those film reviews on the pod um, that I, in the same way that I was doing before um, with Wildeberg, the draft is now uh, officially less than two months away. So you can look for the next episode to be a review of, Denny Avdia and RJ Hampton's film. Um, Avdia is a player who who could be there if the Wolves, I think, trade back out of number one, kind of into the middle of the lottery, which, I, as we've talked about before, I think is a possibility. And then and then Hampton is another one of those freaky athletes who I think fits the you know the Rosa's intrigue, um, who could be there when the Wolves select at number seventeen. So I think those are two two players um, that they're obviously relevant for this draft and relevant for the Wolves. So we'll be with those. Those will be the next episode. Um, Until then, I'm Dane. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Enjoy whatever this program is and how it can be experienced through the Timberwolves social media. I'm not sure what that's all going to look like, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep tabs on it and it's something we will, we will talk about um, going forward until then. I'll talk to you next week. Peace out. So you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah Don't let standards ever, ever bring you down, yeah Hope you're dancing like nobody else around, Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.